Amen. Show us Christ as we prepare our hearts to open up his word and and uh, it might be surprising to you we're going to see Christ uh, from second chronicles and so I invite you to take your copy of God's word if, if you don't have a Bible I, I mentioned it earlier back on the back wall there's a table feel free right now grab a Bible you're going to need it because I'm summarizing and going to point places but we're covering three chapters and I'm uh, I'm not going to um, I guess uh, read them all, um, but going to reference to you, and you're going to want to be able to mark those things. Second Chronicles, and we're going to, I'm just going to read for us um, the beginning of chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped. And gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to try to get away from the speakers because it's vibrating or making feedback sounds. We have rhythms in our life, don't we? You have routines. Maybe you don't think about them, but our daily lives are, are marked by structures, and rhythms, if you will, the way we structure our day and our time. Typically, we, we go to bed at a similar time and we get up at a similar time. And how we structure our lives actually communicates something, doesn't it? It communicates what we value or deem as important. Or you could say the inverse of what isn't important. What we do and how we live communicates but not only that, our daily rhythms not only show what we believe is important, but our daily rhythms actually have an influence on us. They, they actually shape who we are. That's why we, we train our kids. Just think about when you were a young child going to school, you, you learned rhythms. It was interesting um, now that I've been out of school and Friday is now a legitimate day off. Um, I, I take Sarah and Lillian and Luke to lunch um, and, and while the other kids are at school. And, uh, and Lillian, our, our, she's only uh, three years old, she, she this Friday got up this morning and she said, so where are we going to lunch? And she's yet to realize what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday even are. But yet she had built into her body routines. It impacted her. And so what we do, the patterns of our life, actually, they shape how we think, how we feel, and how we act. And this is why changing our daily rhythms is so difficult, isn't it? It makes us uncomfortable when things change. We don't like change. Yet if you remain disciplined in whatever change you want to make, you actually develop new habits, don't you? Just think of a diet. 
You start on a new diet, it's so difficult to start. Or that new exercise routine, or you're going to get up at a, a new time, or you've started a new job. All those things create new patterns that are, are contrary to what you're used to. But after a few weeks of doing that and sticking to it, your body adjusts, doesn't it? And now it seems a little more natural than what it one time felt. Well, I believe this is a, uh, a practical outworking of a greater principle we find in Scripture, the fact that you and I are made in the image of God. We're made in the image and likeness of our God, and our Creator is a God of order. Our Creator is a God of structure and a God of design. And in fact, He has created rhythms even in our, our daily lives and the way the world was created. We think we, about it, we have 24-hour days, right? We can just kind of sense what time of the day it is because we're so used to that pattern. We have seven-day weeks, 12 months in a year. And added to all these things, we have seasons, fall, winter, spring, and summer. And the reason there are structures built into the very fabric of the creation is actually to direct our gaze heavenward to give honor and thanks to God. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Paul says that the whole world knows who God is. They see his power and his glory that the heavens declare, yet they refuse to honor him and give him thanks. And that refusal is a suppressing of the truth. They have to go against God's order and God's design. But not only has God ordered the creation to declare his glory and majesty, but I want us to see this morning that he has also prescribed how his people should approach him in worship. He has patterns, he has routines, he has structures, not only just to show us how to approach him, but to impact us, to shape us, and to mold us. He's instituted in his word rhythms. We call these liturgies. That's kind of a more fancy term for it. Liturgies in order to shape our hearts, our minds, and our actions to honor and praise him. Paul says it this way, train yourself for godliness. I use that term liturgy. And that term speaks of the arrangement of the public worship service. If you've been here for any amount of time, you almost have the rhythm down, don't you? There's something good about that. There's a rhythm and, and you only notice when things are different when things are different. Uh, but you, you have those rhythms. You know how the service is typically going to go. You know, oh, this is the time that Chase is going to step up. And here's, here's Chase's three points that are going to come. And then afterwards we're going to pray. And then we'll have a song of response. And, and then dismissal. You, you know that. But many Christians don't give much thought to these arrangements. Beyond, you just know the, what's next. For instance, have you ever wondered, let's think of it from a, a bird's eye view, why is church always on Sunday? Why not Saturday or any other day of the week for that matter? Have you, have you thought about that? It's actually not just because, well, there's not work on Sunday typically. There's something about it. The scripture speaks of it as the Lord's Day. And then there's the routine that we go through on the Lord's Day that most of us don't give much thought of either until, of course, it's changed. And so for this reason, we've put together a nine-week series on worship. Because I want, I want to help us not only recognize these structures, but 
But more importantly, prepare our hearts for them. To realize how God is, is, is shaping us through these routines. How God is, is actually guiding us in a way so that we may grow closer to him. And we need those structures because, because our default isn't to honor and praise him. We need rails, if you will, to, to guide us. And so that's what we want to do this morning. And so there's a principle in Scripture that says you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And we, we want to become like him. We want to worship him as he's prescribed. And so today I want to focus on shaping our worship according to the gospel so that we may be conformed in the image of Christ. And, and I want to show us how the gospel uh, shapes our worship and actually establishes patterns for us which progressively guide us down the path of receiving the grace of God in Christ. Because how we approach Christ in worship on a corporate level, get this, impacts how you will approach him on a personal level. Everything that we do on Sunday morning is a macro level of what God is pressing into our hearts to do on a family level and on an individual level. So everything here, in some measure, has a correspondence to your personal life. And I want us to see that. And the way we're going to do this is from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses, well, chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 7, verse 10. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage. That's why I only read that one portion. And I am aware that this passage is the Old Testament. So, Chase, how are you going to show us about gospel-shaped worship in the Old Testament. Well, I want us to understand that much of the structures of our worship, they have a basis. They actually come from Old Testament Israel's worship, and those structures are, are rooted there. And this passage brings us actually to the climax of Israel's history and worship when Solomon has built the temple. This is the dedication ceremony. It's a, a grand worship service where the temple has been built. And what takes place in this passage not only serves as the dedication of the temple of God, but it serves to establish the pattern of Israel's worship moving forward. Now, if you're familiar with that story, it goes downhill from there. But this pattern was to establish how Israel is to approach their God and worship. However, for us on this side of the cross, Israel's worship has found its fulfillment in Christ. So we now worship Christ as the substance of which the Old Testament pointed. So while we no longer offer sacrifices at a temple, we heard that from Pastor Joshua as he read from Hebrews chapter 9, it doesn't mean the patterns have been completely abandoned. Rather, they take on their proper shape. That's what we see. And so from our passage, we're instructed how to humbly approach this morning, how to receive and respond to Christ in worship. So if you're taking notes, I don't have the slides today, so you're going to be on your own, okay? So you're going to have to write notes if you're one of those people, and I'm going to try to keep, keep the points before you. Here, here they are. We want to humbly approach Christ in worship, humbly receive Christ in worship, and humbly respond to Christ in worship. So it's approach, receive, and respond. 
Let's begin with the first. Humbly approach Christ in worship. Now, in our scene, what's being Second Chronicles chapter five, the scene of this opening verses, verses two through six, is of the nation of Israel gathering together, assembling for worship. All the people of God, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the whole congregation are gathering together. This would have been a, a magnanimous event, if you will. And Solomon is there and leading the people in worship. And we read in verse 3, so put your finger there, that they did so at the feast that is the seventh month. And this feast is the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. It was held after the harvest had come during uh, the fall in September through October. And this feast was instituted in the book of Leviticus in, in chapter 23, verse 43, to remind Israel of their redemption from Egypt. And how God had provided for them in their wandering, in their booths, in their tents. And so they had a feast commemorating that event. How God provided for them and sustained them in the wilderness after he redeemed them from slavery as they're wandering around setting up their tents for 40 years. It was a feast of remembrance that God had redeemed them and that their life was sustained by his hand. And so what we have here, as the Chronicle notes, is that we are to be thinking of this feast, be thinking of God's redemption of Israel. They're gathering together in remembrance of redemption. And so I've got kind of three points under this. How do we humbly approach? Well, first we gather. We gather. There is something about gathering together. No disrespect, live stream. But if you're only live streaming, you're not humbly approaching. There's something about being among the people that is shaping, isn't there? If you've been sick or something, you've watched on the live stream, uh, I mean, it glitches. It, and even at its best, it's, it's only a poor representation of what's going on. God says, come to me. Come to me. And that looks like gathering together with his people. And this remembrance here was the basis of their gathering for worship, this remembrance of the redemption from, from Egypt. The people are assembling together, humbly recognizing God's redemptive mercy and grace towards them. And it's for the same reason that we gather this morning, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We gather because God has redeemed us in Christ, amen? We assemble and we're humbly recognizing by our presence that we need his sustaining grace, don't we? If you don't show up, what does that communicate? I don't need you. I'll take it or leave it. There is something communicated by what you value by your presence. And I want you to know that's a two-way street. It actually shapes you too and continues to show you the importance and continue to shape your heart to know and love him by your presence. It's significant that we find in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John that John shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, the Festival of Lights, if you will. And Jesus says about the Feast of Booze, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Think about the wilderness. 
in your tents. If anyone thirsts, come to me. That's all right. I'll just stay from afar and watch. No, you don't see your need, do you? You come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us he said this in speaking of the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us. And so when we gather together, brothers and sisters, we testify that we are actually one people, don't we? A one redeemed people who need Jesus Christ. We gather recognizing, as Paul says to Ephesians 4, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's something symbolic about the the gathering of of one place and one people. Now, ultimately, we know that that's that's imperfect, and, 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 and there are congregations all over the world but we're united by the one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one hope. Not only do we gather, but what do we do when we gather? We approach him not on our own terms, but when he assembles his people. There's something humbling about that. I'm sure some of you would like the the gathering date to be, maybe just could you make it 15 minutes later? Or, Or could we do it at a different time? There's something humbling by which We come together, and it's not one person's preference. It's it's just, here's the time we gather, and you must come. But when we approach the one Spirit, one Lord and one God and Father of all, what do we do? Why do we come? We come to confess, don't we? Look again at our text. Look in verse 6 now. Chapter 5. So they've gathered And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him or before the ark. Now notice what they're doing. Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. What are they doing? They're making a sacrifice for sins. And why do they do that? As we read in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And what we see in verses 7 through 10 is then the priests mediate between God and the people. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the stone tablets of Moses, and they place them in the inner sanctuary, which is the most holy place. And this whole ceremony is communicating something. You on your own cannot approach a holy God. All the priests, they had to make sacrifices for themselves. They get in and they get out. And you need a mediator. And they've sacrificed many sheep and oxen. Why? Because our sins are many. So Israel here, is realizing that they are in the presence. They have come to gather in the presence of a holy God. And they need consecrated priests, mediators to enter on their behalf. And brothers and sisters, we're no different. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen? However, not only is he our mediator, but 
He is our once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Again, Hebrews reminds us, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so what are we doing when we gather We gather and we confess our sins and our trust in Jesus is our great high priest and mediator and sacrifice for us, don't we? That's what we're doing. And we move from confession then to adoration. We adore. We gather, we confess, and we adore. And so having confessed our sins and our need for atonement in Christ, we then, what do we do? We sing songs, we praise, and we adore our Heavenly Father for accepting Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, right? Do you see how the congregation moves from from confession to adoration? In verses 11 through 13, when the priest comes out of the, the holy place, they lead the congregation in song and singing in unison, and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. What do they praise him for? Look in verse 13. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. We can give a hearty amen to that, right? In Christ, knowing that his blood has covered our sins, we say, Father, you are good to us. Your steadfast love, your your covenant love, your faithfulness to your promises, they are forever. And we know that far greater than Old Testament Israel did because we see the one to whom all these things are pointing to, who has secured for us an eternal redemption by his blood. And then notice what happens at the end of verse 13 and into 14. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What's happening? God comes to dwell with his people in this passage. He dwells with them. He comes to dwell in the temple showing that their sacrifice and their worship is acceptable to him. They've approached him on his terms, confessing, humbly confessing and adoring. And in a far greater way, because we have come to Christ, his sacrifice for us has actually made us acceptable to God. And he doesn't just come and dwell in this building. That's why we can kind of move around. And and if this building were destroyed, we could gather somewhere else. He doesn't just dwell in a building, but now he has taken residence in our hearts by giving us his spirit. He dwells among us, brothers and sisters. And he gives his spirit to those with whom he is well pleased. And that's only because we come in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is how we are to humbly approach Christ in worship. Do you see how the gospel is just permeated in this text? even before we, quote-unquote, have the gospel. The New Testament God is the same God of the Old Testament. We must still approach him the same way, but boy, we got a, a better high priest. 
We have a better mediator. We have a better sacrifice. That's what Hebrews 9 was all about. And so we come, we confess, and we adore. That's what it looks like to humbly approach Christ. And I trust that you do. And this humble posture then prepares our hearts and minds to move forward in worship. To, number two, humbly receive Christ in worship. This is chapter 6. Humbly receive Christ in worship. And we see this principle fleshed out in two ways in this passage, in this chapter, through proclamation and prayer. Proclamation and prayer. You see the proclamation in the first 11 verses. Now that God's presence has come among them, it's now time for God's people to hear from God himself. And yet, how are they going to hear? Sounds like Paul. How how are they going to hear? They need a preacher, right? We live in an age of hearing because of Genesis 3. We live in an age of hearing. The way we see God is by hearing with our ears. And Solomon recognizes the significance of the event that is occurring as this dedication of the temple has has taken place. Solomon says, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, verse 2, a place for you to dwell in forever. But then, verse 3, the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And what does he say? He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has with his hand fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. That's his sermon introduction. And Solomon proceeds in verses 5 through 11 to expound upon the word of the Lord given to his father, David. That's what he does. And the word, particular word, although he doesn't cite it so much, he, he's quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7 or, or 1 Chronicles 17. It's the same passage where God promised David and said, David, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build a house for you. And Solomon recognizes and is now expounding upon the promises of God, the word of God given to David. They're now revisiting, and Solomon is now expounding it for the people and showing its significance for them today. That's what's going on. Solomon preaches a sermon on God's promises to David and how they have been fulfilled in the son of David. Huh, sounds like what we do, right? We open up God's word and we hear how God's promises to David have been fulfilled in the son of David. Look in verse 10. Look at what Solomon says as he concludes his sermon. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, standing on this side of the cross, I, you can't help but think if you just put Jesus there, it would sound the same, right? For I have risen, and now I'm in the place of my father, David. And now I sit on the throne, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Peter tells us at his sermon on, in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus whom you crucified God raised up and made him both Lord and Christ. 
Later in Acts, we read as, as the church is being established that the prophet Amos' word is fulfilled, that Jesus has rebuilt the fallen house of David with every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so when we gather to, to worship, brothers and sisters, one of the components by which we gather around is the proclamation of the word. And I'm going to expound upon that more next Sunday. But I just want you to see the overall structure here. We gather to listen to the proclamation of God's word, and we hear how God has kept his promises through his son Jesus. We're just further down the storyline, if you will, from the Old Testament. But we're approaching God the same way, just we have more information. But not only do we receive Christ through proclamation, but also through prayer. Verses 12 through 42 recount Solomon's prayer. Now you think we pray long. He's got 30 verses, which is a summary. These are all summaries, by the way. But Solomon, concluding a sermon, then intercedes on behalf of the people in prayer. And this prayer extends from verse 12 to 42 of chapter 6. And, and so I can't read all that for us and expound upon it, but I do want to summarize the components of this prayer. And I want you to hear what I hope you see modeled when we pray at the pastoral prayer time. In verses 14 and 15, Solomon begins with praise and adoration based on the passage of Scripture. He's explained. So his prayer is a launching pad from the Scripture that he has just read or explained. And he says this, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Then verses 16 and 17, he then moves Having extolled God, he then moves into petition based on the scripture he just preached. Asking God to keep his promises and to confirm his word. So when we pray, brothers and sisters, that's why we have the prayer right after the scripture reading. And if you're listening, we try to pray that text back. And that's exactly what Solomon is doing. We are to ask God to do what he has told us he would do in his word. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, I will do. Well, how do you do that? Well, pray his word. Pray his promises. Pray the scriptures. Verses 18 through 20, he gives another petition, asking God to do three things. First, to listen to our prayers. Father, listen to us. We pray, Father, listen to us. I don't come in my name, but I come in the name of your Son, I bear his name, and I'm asking that you will hear me because Jesus told me that whenever I come in your name, you will answer. We ask God to listen to our prayers, forgive us of our sins, and to vindicate us before our enemies. That's what he does in this prayer. And he does it in verses 21 through 40, crying out on behalf of the people. He begins to intercede and pray as a corporate representative of the full body of the congregation who's gathered there, asking God for seven things. You know what he asks for? I'll list them. Justice. 
for favor and defeat by their enemies. That God would meet their daily needs by sending them rain and sustaining them through famine. To make his name known among the world. There's a prayer for missions in there. To give his people victory in their pursuits. And to deliver them from sin. And in verses 41 and 42, he concludes by asking God's for God's presence and power to continually abide among his people. Do you pray like that? Because Solomon is teaching Israel how to pray as he models it before them. And that's what we want to do in, in our prayer times. We want to try to model how to pray for our Heavenly Father. We want to intercede on behalf of the congregation, praying God's word back to him and asking him for the things he says he'll give us. And so that you will pray like this, that what we do on a corporate level, you will mimic at a family and individual level. Notice again in in verse 1 of chapter 7, that after the proclamation and prayer, what happens? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What's happening here? God gives affirmation, I'm with you, and I accept your worship. My word has been prayed or been preached, and my word has been prayed, and I accept it. That's pleasing to God as his word is proclaimed and his word is prayed. And this leads to the final element where we are to humbly respond to Christ in worship. Humbly respond to Christ in worship. And that begins with thanksgiving and praise. We see that after the congregation meets with God and beholds his glory, they respond, verse 3. And they bowed down with their faces to the ground and on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good. For a steadfast love endures forever. Worship concludes where it began. And it's interesting in this, in this setting, the priest and Solomon have been leading out, but it's not till the end that the people respond. And I think that what that's telling is they're guiding the people along so they would culminate themselves in worship. And doesn't that happen? I mean, I, I'm under no illusion that you come hot and ready to worship when you show up here. At welcome time, we'll say, hey, how are you doing? And it is blank stares. But by the end of worship, your heart has been filled as we've been singing and praying. We're guiding you along, hopefully, that as you hear the word now, your heart is burning within you, that you're saying, Chase, all right, sit down so we can praise him. That's what we're going for. And that's exactly what happens as Solomon leads the people in worship. And so we too, we meet with God as we sit under his word and commune with him in prayer. And when this occurs, we respond with song and thanksgiving. We call it here the song of response. We don't make this stuff up. It's right here. Now this is interesting here. This is one of my little theological nerd nuggets, but I'm going to share them. Look in verses 8 and 9 and see what happens. Solomon then Solomon then moves to a time of celebration and fellowship, notice, in a meal. In a meal. They have a feast 
And they begin consuming what was left from the sacrifice. Does that sound familiar to you? God's people responding to God's word with a meal? Sounds like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? They gathered, they had a meal, and they eat and they receive from what's left over in the sacrifice. Well, in the same way, we partake in the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. It's a celebration of what God has done, that he has met with us, that he has redeemed us, that he has kept us. But it is also a time by which we commune with one another and we are feasting on the abundant grace of God in Christ. That one single sacrifice for sins has overabundant leftover for everybody else. Now certainly we're not saying that the, in the actual elements themselves is, is the power, but is, it is a, a, a symbol of a reality that is true in our life. That Christ's sacrifice for us has spilt over in abundance. And all are welcome to come to the meal if you come on his terms. Humbly approach, humbly receive, and then humbly respond. That's why we fence the table. It's not, it is open to everyone, but under God's terms, for true worshipers. And then notice the end, verse 10. At the conclusion of this grand worship service, Solomon sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for their prosperity that the Lord has granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. What happens? They leave, they're dismissed at the end of the service with joy and gladness because they met with God. They met God. They stood before him, they saw his glory. And it shaped their hearts. It shaped their hearts and they go out, they go home. And so when we rightly approach Christ in worship, when we rightly receive him in worship, when we rightly respond to him in worship, our joy is made complete, brothers and sisters. As God shares his prosperity with us, namely himself through Christ. That's what they're rejoicing over. The prosperity that the Lord granted to David and to Solomon and to the people. We just adjust that now in its fulfillment. We rejoice in the prosperity given to the son of David, which extends to his people. So I want you to see here, and we're going to reiterate these elements throughout the next, now, eight weeks. There is a structure, there's a rhyme and a reason. This isn't the only passage as if this is the exhaustive sermon or a worship service structure, but I want you to see it's an example. And in fact, if you go to say Moses, another great moment at Mount Sinai, they're the same things happening. And actually, when you go to the throne room in Revelation, the same things are happening. Or if you go to Isaiah 6, the same things are happening. And God's people throughout history have reflected upon these things and learned there is a proper way to approach God. And now as we're New Testament believers, we see that that some of these things have now made a shift. But as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish how you worship God. I've come to fulfill it. And now our worship looks very different, but yet structured the same way as Old Testament Israel. 
And in this way, I pray that our, the patterns of our worship would begin to shape your heart, would shape your mind, which then leads to how you live and becomes natural to worship God. That's what we want to do here. And so if you're not a lover of Jesus, you're here today, you don't love Jesus, that, that sounds foreign to you, you wouldn't say, I'm a worshiper of Jesus. And I pray that you, as you have participated this morning, even passively, that you were led to Christ. That's what our services are for. They bring you through that even you, the gospel structured our service, that if you were following through and you believed with your heart and with your, all your mind and all your soul and you were confessing and you were singing and you were joined into worship, you've been led to Christ and now it is time for you to respond with repentance and faith. And if that is true of you after the service, I'm going to be out those double doors to my left in the same spot that I'm always at. But if it's your first Sunday, go through those double doors to your right. And I'll be there. And I want to, I want to meet you. And I want to tell you what, what Jesus says to do next as you have now given your life to him in worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and you are you are mighty, you're glorious and awesome in power. There is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all, your, with all their heart, for you have kept your promises to your servant David, through the son of David, Jesus. And we come to him, we come to you, bearing his name. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you, who does not come in your name, Lord, that you would open up their eyes, open up their ears, soften their hearts, and that they too would bow down in worship before you. And that everyone who leaves here would leave joyful and glad for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.